0: Thank you for listening to this Calvary Aurora Bible study with Pastor Ed Taylor. We pray as you study through God's Word that you're blessed by God's abounding grace. Amen. Take your Bibles and open them to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 8 and 1 Kings chapter 12 as we start a new chapter after the death of Solomon. So far in our studies through the history of Israel, we've met the first three kings of Israel. The first king, his name was Saul. And the best way to describe Saul is that he was empty hearted toward the Lord, dark hearted. Then, the king that took over after Saul was David. David, we could say his heart was full toward the things of God, committed. Solomon? The next king, David's son, well, his heart was half-hearted. He wasn't fully committed. And while David, with his united heart toward God, he left to his son a united kingdom, Solomon, with a half-heart toward God, leaves to Rehoboam a divided kingdom. Really in through, he left, he left Rehoboam a united kingdom, but through his upbringing with Rehoboam, the kingdom ends up divided tonight. The only reason the nation of Israel has a king is because they asked for it. They, they saw the other nations and they wanted to be like the nations. They didn't want the, the exclusivity of having what is known as a monarchy. And, and a theod... Not a monarchy, that's with the king. That's what they got because that's what they asked for. They, they were not satisfied with a theocracy. And that is God leading through godly men. But that God was the leader. Instead they wanted like, they wanted a monarchy like all the nations around them. Even though, notice with me in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Even though God warned them how having a king would be detrimental to their lives. Notice with me in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots to be his horsemen. Some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make weapons of war and equipments for his chariots verse 13 this king will take your daughters to be perfumers cooks and bakers and he'll take the best of your fields the best of your vineyards the best of your olive groves and give them to his servants he'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and will give it to his officers and servants he'll take your men servants and your maid servants and your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work he'll take a tenth of your sheep and he'll be and you will be his servants verse 18 you will cry out in that day because your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. And nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but we will have a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that the king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice And make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. It happened. It happened because God's word is true. The Bible even says in such strong words, Let God be true and every man a liar. God's warnings are true. God's wisdom is true. God's word is true. And even though they were warned, they still asked. Solomon disobeys God. The biggest disobeyment, the the biggest act of disobedience was by multiplying wives, concubines, exactly what the king was told not to do, and he did. Why was the king told not to do this? Because they were warned, the king was warned, if you multiply wives, they're gonna turn your hearts away from me, and you're gonna become idolatrous. What happened at the end of Solomon's life? He became an idolater. I mean, all, I think all the way through his life because he didn't just multiply all these wives overnight. It was the course of his whole kingdom. It was the course of his life. It was the legacy that he left to his son, Rehoboam. And the nation will wrestle with the sin of idolatry through its entire history. And we see it picking up in 1 Kings 12. This will be a thorn in the side of Israel Even now, as they separate between Israel and Judah, it will be a thorn in their side. Moving on. Pick up with me in chapter 11, verse 41. And the rest of the Acts of Solomon, all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Now Rehoboam went to Shechem, For all of Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it was when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, he was still in Egypt, for he fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt, that they sent and called him. Then Jeroboam and the whole congregation of Israel came and spoke with Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we'll serve you. So he said to them, depart for three days, then come back to me. And the people departed. Shechem is up in the north area again, the tribe, the area that that was given to the tribe of Ephraim. And this is where Israel goes to make Rehoboam king. We're not exactly sure why they did this because it would make more sense to anoint the next king in Jerusalem. Uh, But perhaps it was for political reasons, Uh, we don't know. But Jeroboam was sent for while this was taking place. And he comes sort of as a representative telling Rehoboam, he uses the phrase that your father, notice verse four, made our yoke heavy. That little phrase encompasses everything that we read previously in 1 Samuel chapter eight. A large growing government is going to put a heavy burden on the people of that government. We call that today taxes. And the larger the government, the more taxes that are collected so that the government gets larger and the more taxes collected. That's what's happened with Solomon. He put a heavy yoke. With all his building projects, all that needed to be done, they needed to be paid for. And how were they paid for? But through the people. And it was hard and it was difficult. The kingdom under Solomon was very different than the kingdom under David. So the heavy yoke, the heavy yoke For those of you that are new to the Bible, the word yoke is referring to a a, a round wooden instrument that they would put on, on animals. It would have two holes in them and they would yoke together two animals to plow the field together. That's why in the New Testament, when it speaks of getting into relationships, whether it's a marriage or a dating relationship or even in a business relationship, David uses the same exact picture. He says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You can go ahead and Google it. Don't do it now because you're in Bible study, but you can Google it. It'll show you a picture of an ancient yoke. And the idea is, is that when you put an ox in one side of the, on one side of the yoke, you wanna then yoke that or put that, that ox together with another ox. That way they will work together. You don't wanna put a donkey in one side and an ox in the other side because then they wouldn't work together. So in that same picture, the yoke... The yoke, that that, that heaviness that was placed upon their necks was too much for them. Unlike, of course, Jesus, he uses the same exact illustration, doesn't he? He bids us to come to him as our savior. He bids us to come to us as the savior of the world and he says, you come to me because my yoke, what I'm gonna place upon you is much easier and my burden is light. Jesus has come to take burdens away from us, not add them. And that's the picture, that's the word. It's a yoke, you can Google it, and get a picture of it later. So it was costly and expensive. It was difficult for the people And, and this is how they're feeling. And Rehoboam is asking for and he's receiving this kind of insight. Verse six, then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived and he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you'll be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the counsel which the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And he said to them, What counsel do you give? And how shall we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us. And the young men, verse 10, who had grown up with him, spoke to him, saying, Thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you saying, your father made our our yoke heavy, but you will make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father laid a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I'll chastise you with scourges. And so Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king directed saying, come back to me the third day. The king answered the people roughly and rejected the counsel which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I'll chastise you with scourges. And so the king did not listen to the people for the turn of affairs was from the Lord that he might fulfill his word which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah, the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of of Nebat. Rehoboam the king is looking for counsel and he goes to do two different people. The first group of people he goes to were the elders, the wise men, the men that were with Solomon. Now it's an interesting group to go to because the elders that were serving with Solomon were probably participating in the heavy yoke. They were probably giving counsel of what was needed, not necessarily to harm the people, but just the reality to pay the expenses of what was needed. But going to wise, older, godly men and women is a good choice. Let me lay that out for you. Going to godly, wise men and women, older men and women, men and women that are older than us, that have been walking with the Lord longer, is a good source of counsel. And that's what God is showing us here. The older men say, man, be gentle. It's been, it's been hard. Be gentle with them. If you are soft-toed them, like the Bible says, a gentle answer, um, a, you know, a soft answer uh, reduces wrath. It stops wrath. If you will give them a gentle answer and a soft answer, if you will be soft with them, then, then they'll follow you. Serve them. Take care of them. It's been a hard years under your dad. And I think Rehoboam knew that. And, and take the softer approach. Then... He turns from the counsel of the elders to the counsel of the younger, the kids he grew up with. Now you young people, let me tell you something. You do not know as much as the elders do. That's why the Bible teaches us to respect our elders. Let me be careful, and that is, not all elders give good advice, because the Lord has to confirm that advice. It has to be biblical, so not, we don't get an automatic pass in the advice that we give you. Um, Those of us that are older, ministering to you younger people, you you may not receive that from us. You know, you, you may, we're not automatically right. God has to confirm the truth from his word. But I would say this, don't automatically dismiss counsel from those that are older. Which really, where does it begin? In the home. The Bible says for us to respect our mother and father. And so counsel from our mother and father from the word is to be accepted. We we actually, as parents and as leaders, we, we actually have some good advice from you from the Bible. It's good advice. You may not want to hear it. You may not want to receive it. You may not even like it. But you have to trust it's from the Lord. You have to trust, for example, one piece of advice I'm giving to you young people is the, your peers are probably going to agree with you. They're probably going to have counsel. Hey, what do you think? Should we go party? Yeah, man, let's go party. That's what I've been waiting for somebody to go with me. When what you need is, no, that's not from the Lord. We don't belong at that place. We belong in school. We belong in obey. You know, you know your mom doesn't want you. That's yeah, the kind of counsel you get, but when you go to the kid, you know, when you're asking your friends, what do you think? Well, uh, you know, I don't know. Let's go send together. And because they're your friends, you follow them. God has put older people in our lives I have some older people in my lives, including my pastor, that I'll call so he could speak into my life. He can tell me what. I think the age also is even related not just to age chronologically, like how old we are, but also those that are older in the Lord, that have been in the Lord longer than us. We shouldn't just dismiss counsel because it's from an older person. I don't know what it is about us, but there is a sense in us, because they're older, we, oh, you don't know. You know, you're not connected with reality, you don't understand. Well, it's in those times you really have to take the counsel of those that are older and receive it, confirm it from the word, and make the right decision. The counsel from the elders was wise. It was a wise piece of counsel. Go gentle with them. The verse I was trying to quote is in Proverbs 15. A soft answer turns away wrath, it's Proverbs 15.1. But harsh words stir up anger. And the best leadership in the world was modeled by Jesus as he was a servant. And for the many years I was in the corporate world I remember they would hire different consultants and different people to come in and they would get us all into a room as management and they would put up all the the PowerPoint and give us all the books and they were teaching us servant leadership like they're the ones that found it and they're the ones that created it. You won't believe this is the best thing for our company. It will make us billions and it will have have the It's servant leadership and they were teaching it like they're the ones that invented it. But God is the model of servant leadership it goes back into the Garden of Eden. I mean, it goes back into the creative process of the first seven days of creation where God served us by creating this world and creating us, creating Adam and his wife, creating a beautiful, pristine area, creating the animals and and all of creation, why? To serve us so we might enjoy fellowship with him. And then even after Adam and Eve failed in such great sin, God, he went after them. Where are you serving them, wanting to bring them back? All the way fast forward to your life and mine where God would serve us by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf. But Jesus, he's the the epitome of servant leadership. And as we've been learning on the weekends, that, that is a key principle in our fellowship. We must be the servant of all. We don't arrive at some position, uh, we don't gain some title where we serve less. It's it's the opposite. The more responsibility that God gives us, the more we serve. The more we give ourselves to the Lord. The more we lay our lives down until he comes again. And the advice they gave was wise. It was good. And, And God spoke that to him through the elders. Yet, The counsel that he received was, go hard on him, man. Just start ruling with force, rule with cruelty, rule with manipulation. And the sad thing is, is notice in verse 8, it's the bad decision that he makes. He rejected the counsel which the elders gave him. He rejected the counsel that the elders gave him. Or you could say from the conclusion, he rejected the good counsel of the Lord. And may I just say, when you receive good counsel, please don't reject it. As painful as it is, and as difficult as it'll be, don't reject good, sound counsel. Because not only will it affect you, but it will affect, as you'll see, the generations after you. Receive sound counsel. I mean, anyone, even with just a basic understanding of treating human beings could see, without any, spiritual, without any spiritual understanding, could see that serving people rather than hurting people is the right decision. That it's not God's will to rule with force or cruelty or, or power trips. Don't make it harder for people, but make it easier for them. And even in the church today, There is this model of ministry and people that believe that ministry is to be done through manipulation, through guilt, through fear, through power, through force, even cruelty to oversee people. I'm shocked at some of the stories that are shared with me in people's lives of how they were treated in a previous church or by someone saying they're representing God. I was just flipping through the channels the other day and this guy that has been Exposed as the, the, I mean, even his commercial, even his little commercial. Some of you might have seen it yourself. Peter Popoff giving away free miracle water, and then they go through an in interview. Well, I, I got my miracle water, and God gave me forty thousand dollars, and I got my miracle water, and God gave me my brand new car, and I got my, and so he gets on. You get your miracle water too for free, and you're just like, no. This guy's been exposed as a fraud many times before. And he's ripping people off in the name of God by giving them what they think is a free vial of water. Instead, they're going to be slammed with it and guilt and manipulated as soon as they get on the phone. And on and on the list goes. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5 with me. Would you hold your place in 1 Kings Let me give to you a simple motto, especially you guys praying about serving, praying about being a part of the ministry, praying about stepping into taking responsibility to serve people in Jesus' name, or you're in the early stages of that, Uh, let me give you a verse to chew on. It's one of the verses we use in our servants class, but let me give you something to, to really chew on and meditate on as you're thinking about serving. Should I listen to the elders that's giving counsel, go serve them, take care of them? Or should I use the younger, uh, take advantage of them and, and, and put your thumb down them any harder? Well, here's what the Bible says, and, and Peter would know, chapter five, verse two. Peter would know, he instructs us to shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock so that when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. It's one of the best summaries of Christian service and ministry that's in all the Bible. All the ingredients. Serve them, be among them. Don't serve because you think you have to, but serve because you want to. Don't be lording over your authority. Don't we get enough of that in the world? (laughs) Don't we get enough of that at work? You don't don't lord. The authority is not mine and it's not yours. And and God, he represents Jesus. You know, in Psalm 23, it, it it isn't Jesus lording over. In Psalm 23, he's the good shepherd that takes care of the sheep. That's what he says in John's gospel as well. When we refer to him as Lord, as we often do, we're referring to him not as being lording over us and forcing us to do anything. God doesn't force us to do anything. He leads us, he reveals to us, he brings conviction into our hearts, and we respond. So we refer refer to Jesus as Lord, we are acknowledging him as the ultimate authority of our life. That's what we're saying. When you say that, when you're praying, dear Lord, When you see that in the scriptures, you you are referring to him by a title, and that title is he is the master of your life, that you and I have voluntarily submitted to him, that our allegiance is to God, and he is our Lord. And you have to think sometimes of how often we use that word, and how often we don't respond to God as our Lord in our actions, and we too. So this is a different aspect, what Peter, he says, Peter's saying, don't you, Control and manipulate people. Don't do that. That's how the world does it. But instead serve them. Be an example so that when Jesus returns you'll you'll receive the reward for being a good leader in his church. Well, as we pick up in verse 16 and by the way just underline verse 15 real quick if you like to write in your Bibles underline this phrase for the turn of affairs was from the Lord. We're going to get back to it. But underline it or put a little star next to it. And by the time we end, I'll explain to you why. Verse 16. Now when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, What portion have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram who was in charge of the revenue, but all Israel stoned him with stones and he died. Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Now this is the beginning of the divided kingdom. The 10 Northern tribes refused to serve Rehoboam, instead choosing to serve Jeroboam, which begins this divided kingdom. It was the tribes of Judah and Benjamin that followed and stayed with Rehoboam. And so now we have the divide. No longer a united kingdom. We've got 10 tribes against two tribes. And this begins the divided kingdom. Division always destroys. Division's not gonna end well. God's heart, the Bible says, is for reconciliation. That's his heart. That God even speaks to us that he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Primarily, that is our responsibility to share the gospel and love people and tell them about the love of God, but also within the body of Christ. It's God's heart for us to be reconciled. It's God's heart for there to be humility and repentance. It's God's heart for there to be forgiveness because division destroys. It destroys homes. It destroys marriages. It destroys friendships. And it has even the potential to pull down governments, even churches, That's why it says in Psalm 133 verse one, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And so if Satan can get us against each other, if Satan and the devil and our own flesh, our own desires can get us hating on one another, can get us backbiting and fighting and bickering and talking about people and stabbing them and, and taking advantage of the church. And I don't just mean within our church, I mean, that has great application for us as believers that are in a local church. But look at the mess that the larger body of Christ is and how easy it is to say, well, we don't, we're not one of them and we're not one of them and I don't like that and they don't do it wrong. I mean, that's, that, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know how the Lord feels about that in particular. I know what the Bible says. that that God isn't into these factions and these divisions. So we don't agree. We don't agree on certain things. We don't do ministry this certain ways. or all the same way. I mean, there's every church in town has got a different flavor to it, a different direction to it. You know, every real church that's preaching the true gospel of Christ and is pointing people to the cross of Jesus Christ, his birth, his, his death, his resurrection. I mean, churches have variety because there's a variety of people in the world And let me show you something. Turn over to 1 Corinthians for a moment. Division always ends ugly. It is not going to be blessed by God. A divided heart won't be blessed by God. A divided church won't be blessed by God. A divided uh, family, anything that's divided. Jesus warned us that what's divided is not gonna stand. He warned us. Notice what was happening in the early church in 1 Corinthians. There was great difficulty there there was division uh notice in chapter three with me would you first corinthians it just the lord just put that verse in my mind i want to read it to you just so you know that churches deal with this stuff it's normal it's just not good you know it's normal but just because something's normal doesn't mean it's from the lord the bible says division is carnal that's what the bible says division is carnal and i brethren verse one cannot speak to you as spiritual people but as to carnal As babes in Christ, I fed you with milk and not with solid food for until until now, you weren't able to receive it. Even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal for where there is envy, strife, and what does your Bible say? Say loud. Divisions. Where there are divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? The answer to that question is yes. It's a rhetorical question in the church in Corinth, right? Lest you think it's just a 21st century issue right in the beginning. I mean, even among the followers of Jesus, there was division and rivalries. And it's just those things we have to put before the Lord. And the thing when it, when those feelings rise up, we need to crucify our flesh. They were even picking people. Verse four, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Aren't you carnal? Who then is Paul. Who is Apollos? Who is Ed? That's not in there, but I want to throw it out there. (laughs) That's not my Bible. Who are these guys? Well, they're ministers. Remember what I told you? The word minister literally means servant. They're ministers. Through whom you believed, and the Lord gave each one. And this is encouraging. We're all in it together. I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered, but God's. He gave the increase. So neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but it's God who gives the increase. Division never ends well. By the time we finish studying this part of Israel's history, the northern tribes known as Israel will have seen 19 kings and only eight of those kings were good. Only eight of those kings had any good in their leadership. The southern two tribes known as Judah, so just remember that, Israel to the north, Israel is made up. Ten tribes, Judah to the south, made up of two tribes. They will see 20 kings, and you know, the southern tribes, they will have zero good kings. Zero good leadership from this day forward. So out of a total of 39, or excuse me, yeah, 39, only eight good kings out of them. And we'll study them in our time. The end of their history will be Assyria scattering Israel in 726 B.C., and Judah being taken captive by Babylon in 586 BC. And this is the Babylonian captivity, you recall, that is tied together with Ezra, Nehemiah, coming back to rebuild the walls because Jerusalem was laid desolate and the temple was destroyed and the walls of Jerusalem. Yet, there's good news. Let me show you something else. Go to Ezekiel chapter 37. There's still good news with this in the divided kingdom because God spoke of a future in the Bible, and prophetically, in Ezekiel. So I'll give you some time to find it. Ezekiel 37. It's going to be backwards to the left. Ezekiel 37. Pick up with me in verse 15. God had a word of, be, of the land of Israel being reunited and no mention of division. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it. For Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim. And for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick. And they will become one in your hands. And the children of your people will speak to you saying, Will you not show us what this means? Say to them, Thus saith the Lord God. Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand, one in my hand. Notice verse 21, and then say to them, surely I'll take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in that land. Jot this down. May 14th, 1948, Israel was declared a nation once again, a sovereign nation, and God is still bringing back and fulfilling this prophecy in Ezekiel of bringing back the Jews to their promised homeland even to this day, and your church is a part of helping we have missionaries there helping bring back and fulfill prophecy. It's amazing. And here there, there's not a lot of mention of division in Israel today because God is fulfilling his word. Okay, come back and let's find our way through the rest of the chapter here. Now in verse 21 When Rehoboam, when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel, that he might restore the kingdom Rehoboam and the son of Solomon. But the Lord, word of God came to Shimeiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to me or return to his house. Mark this. This is the second one I want you to mark in the chapter. For this thing is of me. Notice the capitalization. Let every man, don't go to war. Let every man return to his house for this thing is of me. Therefore, they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. So Rehoboam sees the division. He decides to solve it with a war to win back unity. Why was that his first response? Why was his first response? Why did that seem to come so quickly for him? Why didn't he send messengers? Why does it, it immediately go to war? Well, his dad multiplied horses too. The two things that kings weren't supposed to do. Multiply wives and multiply horses. And you say, Ed, what's the big deal about horses? Well, horses were symbolic what we would say today how what God would say to a king today is one man one woman one lifetime king don't turn in don't multiply wives like all the other kings do don't do that which is still happening in the Middle East today by the way this isn't anything that's ancient those that are leading Middle Eastern countries many Middle Eastern countries under Islamic rule multiply wives it's still happening but what we would say today is, don't multiply wives and also don't multiply war machines because you'll trust in them. And that's what Roy Rehoboam turned to. What did his dad provide for him? What tools did he provide to his son? Idolatry and a war machine. Dads, prepare your kids well. Prepare your kids well. They're gonna use the tools that you give them unless God somehow breaks through and frees them from your bad example. Prepare your kids well. Give them the right tools. Disciple them. Pray with them. Have that family time of talking about the things of God. Don't depend on Sunday school. Don't depend on the pastors in high school or junior high. You families that have kids in our school, don't depend on our school to disciple your kids. We will serve you and we will help you. And if it's the only thing they give, we will give everything that we can to that cause. But you are the primary responsibility for your children, spiritually. I remember early on, as my pastor was teaching me and I was learning how to be a dad, that he said to have a family altar. To to have a family altar. And what he meant by that was to have a symbolically, a symbolic time where God is honored in your home that he takes more precedent than the television or the internet or the phones in our day, that that God would be center stage, that you pray with your kids before they go, you drop them off at school, you lay your hands on them and pray God's best and protection in their lives, that you would do family devotions together. You go, I don't know what to do, I don't know how. There are tools down in the bookstore for you to do family devotions. It will take all of 15 minutes to start. If that, maybe 10. Talk about the things of the Lord. We're commanded in Deuteronomy. The children of Israel were commanded in us by application to talk about the things of the Lord around the house. To, To give direction and answer to your kids. To give them counsel. To develop a relationship with them. To not let the pressures of this world. You don't want to leave for them things that you disobeyed God in. You want to leave for them a pattern, a pattern of a good example. Are we going to hit the mark? I can tell you over the years I've raised my kids, uh, my oldest would be 31 this year and my youngest uh, is 20 this year. And I look back at my track record and I can't tell you that we did family devotions every night. You know why? We didn't. And I can't tell you that I prayed with them every night because... Sometimes I wasn't home at night and I didn't pray with them or I was arguing with Marie and we didn't have family devotions. I I can't stand before you and say that I have a perfect track record as a dad but I can say this. God revolutionized my life and I poured what I could into my kids and I pray that I can hand off to them things of obedience and not disobedience. And it's never too late, parents. It's never too late to make the change. Don't leave your kids a heritage of disobedience. He turns to war, that's what daddy left him. That's why you build up a military, so you can go take care of business. And that's what he does. And God intervenes and says, no, don't do that. Praise God for his intervention, amen? This is God just, man, you're going in the wrong way and say, God says no, don't do it. Now, of course, you still have to respond, but then don't do it. Say, like, yes, Lord. God doesn't just intervene when you're born again. He is actively involved in your life all the way to eternity. If you have ears to hear what the spirit of God is saying to you, he'll be talking to you about things all the time no son, yes son, well please son, oh daughter please don't go there. Man God is ministering through his Holy Spirit constantly continually and so God intervenes and then he just tells us this thing, don't do this, don't go to war, this thing is from me. And that's what he wants. He doesn't, he doesn't, God doesn't tell him you know don't go to war because I told your dad a long time ago kings don't go, don't multiply. He doesn't do that. Instead he goes to a higher authority. And he says, don't go to war because I am God and this is my sovereign plan. It's really cool. God's sovereignty, man's response. Beautiful. Notice verse 25. So we finish up the chapter. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, dwelt there. Also he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of his people will turn, their back, turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they'll kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore the king, verse 28, took counsel and made two calves of gold. That sounds like a great idea. And said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one up in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah. And offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel. Sacrificing to the calves that he made. and at Bethel, he installed the priests of the high places and which he had made. And so he made offerings on the altar, which he made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. He didn't get this from the Lord. He devised it in his own heart. He ordained a feast for the children of Israel, offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. So Jeroboam, far from Jerusalem, wants to make it easy for the people to worship. He thinks if they go back to Jerusalem, they'll align themselves back with Rehoboam. So what does he do? He wants to control them, not only by preventing them from going to Jerusalem and possibly being influenced, but also controlling their worship. And he creates these calves. Here are your gods. And they set them up one in Dan, one in Bethel. Now, uh, those that go with us uh, on our tour to Israel, we're going to go up in the northern part. And one of the stops that we st- one of the places that we stop and have a Bible study is is this very area where they set up the golden calf in Dan. And they built this kind of replica type of of a- altar to kind of give you the visual of what it would look like. You can also look that up and see it you can't go with us to Israel and we'll be up there and we'll talk about this very thing you're standing right here where Jeroboam was creating these calves for false worship to control the people he also appointed priests and did his own feast days and lined them all up so that they would pattern and mimic the true following of God and and I was thinking how many concessions and compromises are we willing to make in order to hold on to what we think we control. How many concessions, uh, how many compromises will it will take for you to finally see compromise is not helping you grow in the things of God? But you see compromise after compromise, I mean, just fashioning the calves, like no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. And, and that's where we leave. The, the, the nation's gonna be dis- in disarray. And it's gonna be difficult days as we study through First Kings. Now, before we leave, one final thing. Come back to me. Come back with me to verse fifteen of chapter twelve. This phrase, "for the turn of affairs was from the Lord," and also, uh, as you look, the other one I asked you to underline was what? Verse twenty-four. For this thing is from me, and verse thirty-one of chapter eleven. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself ten pieces, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you. The Lord says this is from him. That's what God says. And it's scriptures like these that cause people great difficulty and cause great division. It sounds like, well, wait a minute, pastor. It sounds like he didn't have a choice. If this is from the Lord, then what choice does he have? He just got to do it. He didn't have a free will to choose otherwise. If God has it already planned out, then that's not very fair. Now, what does that mean for me? Do I just assign myself to what is known in the world as fate or some kind of blind predestination that we have no choice in the matter, that God would take away the free choice that he's given? And it's a common tension between what's known as God's sovereignty and man's free will. It's a great tension. It's hard for us to to conceive the predestination of God and and his sovereignty, his power over all things, and yet the fact that he holds us responsible for our own decisions. He holds us responsible. God's not responsible for our decisions, we are. And it's passages like these that has just caused so much friction in the church, so much tension, so much infighting, so much division. And I was going to add a little paragraph of of study uh, today, but I decided instead of doing that, the next time we're together, I'm going to teach on the topic of predestination. I'm going to take us back to Romans chapter eight, and I'm going to take us through verses 29 and 30, and I'm going to lay out before you what I believe the Bible teaches on the topic of predestination. So it will be an in-depth. We won't just cover it briefly. We will dedicate a whole night to it, as we did many years ago on a weekend. So it's not enough for us. But here's the thing, I wanna leave you with this. Before we get to that study, I wanna leave you with this. Our problem is that we are always trying to bring together God's sovereignty and man's free will, to syncretize them, to bring them together so that they make sense to us. We're always trying to make sense to us. Something in us, especially in our Western mindset, we've gotta figure everything out. We have to have an answer for everything. But listen, my Bible says that God's ways are not my ways and his thoughts are not my thoughts. That there are things that God does that are not the way I think. And over and over again, you, you're watching through, you watch through ministry, there, there are many things that God does that are counterintuitive to, the human, to human reasoning. Like you're rereading something, you go, I don't think I'd do it that way. You know, just think of something simple, just something simple. God says, I'm going to give you the gift of healing. Really? One time I'm going to give it to you. Like he tells you ahead of time. And I'm going to point out the person that I want you to go to. And I'm going to send you there. You're going to get, your boss is going to give you an extra hour of lunch so you can spend some time. I'm going to tell you right where to go. I'm going to send it to you on your phone. All you have to do is click it, follow the directions, come. And when you get there, all you need to do is spit in their eye. That's all you need to do. And I will heal that person of blindness. And what are you doing all the way there? Okay, Lord. And your mouth might even be getting dry. And you go, well, if I'm going to spit, I need some water, you know. And you're just like, I don't know. What kind of spit should it be? You know, and how close should I be? And that's just weird, Lord. I, 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 how about if I spit in my hand? And then, you know, what? that's just, I can't do that. Yeah, but I want to do a healing. And, and I, can I just put my hands on them? Can I just text them? Can I just, because when you're thinking something is just, so outside of your... Now, some of you are going to email me go, I spit at people all the time. I'm not talking to you. <laughs> don't, don't even email me. Don't even do that. If you read the Bible in this way, so much is counterintuitive. If you don't believe me, consider how different you are now than you were when you were born Again how much your mind has changed, how much your life has changed, how, how much you have, have just become a different person. Why? Because God is conforming you and me into the image of Christ and much of that is in the mind. He's changing your mind. He's changing your mind. You know how, how, how difficult it is, how hard it is sometimes when we have these emotions and, and we get so frustrated because we can't change our emotions. I'm so mad right now. Don't be mad. This makes me more mad. And you're just so mad and I can't, and you're just so frustrated because you don't want to be mad, but you are mad. And then you get mad at being mad and then you're just done. It happens with sad. It happens with mad, all the emotions. And it's a waste of time to try to change your emotions. You can't do it. I mean, you might be able to do it in some sense, but in a theological sense, the Bible never encourages you to change your, change your heart, the Bible tells us to change your mind. The what you believe is gonna dictate how you behave. And, and your beliefs have everything to do with your mind when you choose to believe God or you choose to believe a lie. That's a different Bible study altogether. But God is so counterintuitive and the reason why some things in the Bible, you just kind of accept, those of you that have been around the Bible for a while, you read the miracle of Jesus spitting in an eye and you go, "Well, that's kind that's cool. I mean, if Jesus can do it, you know, that's cool. And you don't even, we've been around so long, we don't, we don't even let the wonder of the scripture speak to us anymore. Yeah, Jesus spits in people's eyes. Yeah, Jesus washes feet. You know, yeah. And, and we just kind of, we've been around the Bible. It's so familiar to us, but imagine a new believer reading through and saying, my, what is this? That's why God's given us teachers, right, to teach us what's happening. But the arc, the, over, the overarching principle here is, is that if you come to the Bible simply, not like all this knowledge, knowledge puffs up but love edifies, and you come looking for the word of God, you come looking for his heart, everything about the, the Lord in our lives, if we just look at it from human perspective, is counterintuitive to who we are. We need to align our will with God. God doesn't align his will with us. We pray, Jesus taught us how to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not the other way around. It doesn't work. God, you do, I want you to do my will in heaven while I do my thing on earth. It doesn't work that way. So our problem is always trying to figure out and bring them together, reconcile these two tensions in our minds so that we can just think we fully understand them, we've got all the answers. But it's only in eternity will God give us the understanding that we need. Because I have such limited understanding. I don't know what's gonna happen until it happens. Do you guys have that same limitation? I have no idea what's gonna happen until it happens, not God. If God knows anything, then by definition, he knows everything. And in his knowledge, his foreknowledge, that's known as God's omniscience, he's never taken by surprise. Nothing thwarts his will. You go, well, what if Jeroboam, uh, what if Rehoboam and and Jeroboam, uh, what if Rehoboam rejected God's counsel? Well, God would have accomplished his will another way. But we don't have that you, you start when we, when we begin to, to approach the Bible with all these hypotheticals you miss the truth the truth is God intervened and Rehoboam obeyed that's the truth well what if, what if well what if what if you just accepted the word for what it said and just take it yeah man God's so good I hope you intervene in me if I'm going to do something stupid and I listen to you that's a truth there instead of arguing about it like thank you God I don't understand how it all works, but I don't need to understand how things work to believe them. You know, I don't have any idea. I remember taking in high school a class on, on electricity. I thought maybe that would be my career. <laughs> what a joke. All of those things, man. Wood shop, all of them. I bailed on all of them. And I remember sitting in the class and he's explaining ohms and ohms and volts and, and all I could say is I don't get this. And, and I didn't. It was one of the hardest classes I ever took in my life. And I don't know how I passed. Maybe he was just showing mercy on me. But I don't need to understand electricity to flip on a switch. I don't care how it works. I just want the light on. I don't need to understand it all before I, okay, I'll turn the switch on when I understand electricity. No, man, I'm, I just use it and pay the bill. That's what I do. I don't need to understand, I'm, I am certain that who, who's listening to me right now, whether you're here or you're on the radio, that you live your life the same way. There's a lot of things you don't understand, but you, you use it, you do it. Some of you, you know, are not very mechanical, I don't know how a car works, I don't really care. I'm just gonna put my key in and drive the thing, I don't care. Well, what about the piston, Ed, you'd be so cool. I, I don't care. And I don't need to know, that's just not my realm. And you know what the Bible, I, I, I'm a reader and I'm a studier, but there's so much in the Bible I don't understand, and I'm just gonna trust the Lord with it. And one of the questions that I'm gonna have, because it's caused so much consternation in the church, and even in my own life, is, is man, what, what is this about the tension? What was the deal, Lord? Why, how, how did you do it? How did it look? What, what did it happen? You know, it's obvious from the scriptures that God condescends to the level of man, and still stays God. You go, how could you say that? Jesus. That's how I could say that. God became man, dwelt among us, met us where we were at. He didn't make us come to his level and understand everything that he needed to know. He came, that he knows he came to our level and helped us understand what we needed to know. Isn't a God good that way? So the next time we're together, we're gonna spend time on this topic. It'll be more of a theological Bible study and it'll be good and in depth as we see God's plan being worked out in Rehoboam He listens to the unwise counsel of his peers, making foolish mistakes, defies the kingdom. And yet behind it all, God is working out his plan. He's going to work all things together. That's what Paul tells us, all things together for good for those that love him. That God is going to do everything. He's going to work all things together for our good, but more importantly, for his glory. God's at work behind the scenes. And we'll learn some of that next week. So God, thank you for this section of scripture as we learned by Rehoboam, Jeroboam. I know people reading ahead might just kind of not know what these chapters are all about or what the facts are. But I thank you for giving us insight and, and understanding of different principles and lessons that we can learn. And, and I just pray for the next time we're together, God. Uh, next time that we gather together that on this topic of predestination and, and, and on the, the the real heady part of of what this means and as this word is being used Lord that you would help us give us understanding and I, I just pray right now that I know there are people right now that have some things in their life that they don't understand and they might even be feeling like they're a bad Christian because they don't understand they don't understand what's going on they don't know why they might even be asking you God why and maybe even like feeling guilty about that why would I ask God why and I just pray for them right now you guys know who you are I especially believe someone listening on the radio that that there's just there's this sense of questioning God and and then the condemnation, but God, you have freed them, you love them, you have compassion on us when we don't understand things, but you said there's going to be things we don't understand and and I just. Forgive us, Lord. We don't want it to turn into doubt or worry or anxiety, but sometimes it does. We just ask you to forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for our wavering, for our weakness. Forgive us for letting circumstances blind us from the truth of your word and like torpedoing our faith, causing all these questions, Lord. Pour out your spirit upon us. Have your way with us as a church, Lord. Do the work inside, not just outside, Lord. Do the work in us so that you can work through us. In Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been touched by this study from Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call area code 303-628-7200. Be blessed this week in the Lord.